if you multiply out how much oil and coal and gas that the global economy uses on an annual basis, it's 100 billion barrels. So that means effectively we have a labor force, quote unquote, of 500 billion human workers that we're virtually paying pennies for to extract them from the earth and apply them to a global economy that has around 5 billion real humans. Hello and welcome back to Voicecraft and to an episode featuring Nate Haggins, a professor and genuine expert in the fields of energy, environment and finance. He's the director of the Institute for the Study of Energy and Our Future, an organization focused on educating and preparing society for the coming cultural transition. Nate holds a master's degree in finance with honors from the University of Chicago and a PhD in natural resources from the University of Vermont. He's also the host of The Great Simplification, a podcast that explores the system science underpinning our human predicament where the goal is to inform more humans about the path ahead and inspire people to play a role in our collective future. I've tagged this episode as number three in the Voicecraft Commons series, although it wasn't a specific frame of discussion with Nate. But given the criticality of energy and environment to the Commons, it makes total sense to include it alongside previous dialogues with Michelle Bowens and Forrest Landry, episodes 71 and 74, respectively. I recommend them for anyone who appreciates Nate's quality of systemic thinking, for distinct yet complementary perspectives on the human organism's relation with the life world. And for podcast-only listeners, I'd just like to let you know that I recently published a filmed dialogue with Tyson Young-Porter, author of Sandhawk, How Indigenous Thinking Can Save the World, exclusively to the YouTube channel. I think it's worth checking out for anyone with an interest in the dynamics of membranes in the context of culture making. And finally, I invite you to support this work at patreon.com voicecraft to help it grow. You'll receive additional content and invitations in return. And to sign up to the Substack at voicecraft.io or via the show notes to stay in touch with invitations to monthly meetup events for transformative conversation online and offline. There is something here if you follow the breadcrumbs. Plenty of opportunity to contribute. All right, here we go. Thank you for being here, Nate. It's, um, it's a pleasure to have you. I wonder if I could begin with a question that you've probably received a few times, but I think it is just an opening framing question and I'm I'm curious to hear your response today and that's just in your work with the great simplification you have this notion of energy blindness which seems to be a really core way you communicate much of the thesis of the work and so it does strike me as profound how blind we are to our interwovenness with energy, which almost seems like a ridiculous thing to say and note. But what do you mean by energy blindness and how does it relate to your work with the great simplification? Good to be here, Tim. Good to see you. Good morning, Aussie time. Um, 
humans are storytellers and we're also very focused on the present, both in the future. We care about this weekend more than next week and more than next year. And in the past, recent things in our memory, uh, have much more emotional weight than five years ago or 50 years ago. So since you and I have been, uh, alive and I'm almost a generation older than you, um, since your parents and their parents have been alive, uh, humans have been in this anomalous in history period where we are drawing down the, uh, potent ancient sunlight that was sequestered over tens and hundreds of millions of years by daily photosynthesis. And we're drawing that down and adding the power of that to our economies. Um, and we kind of attribute the largesse that comes from that to technology and our own ingenuity and cleverness. When in reality, a large portion of the physical work that happens on the planet is on the backs of the fossil armies of coal, oil, and natural gas. And the reason that we're blind to this is all we do is we pay at the gas pump or the utility bill for our electricity. Uh, we don't pay for the cost of extraction, nor the cost of pollution. Uh, I mean, sorry, we only pay for the cost of extraction, not the cost of creation, nor pollution. And let me just give you an example. Um, I'm used to USA examples, but I'm sure it's similar in Australia. So a barrel of oil has 5,700,000 British thermal units worth of energy potential. If you translate that into work, it's 1,700 kilowatt hours of work in a barrel of oil, which right now this morning was trading at $73 per barrel. So for $73, we can buy 1,700 kilowatt hours of work where you or I digging a ditch or pounding in uh, fence posts or hauling around wheelbarrows of mulch or any number of physical tasks, we would do 0 0.6 kilowatt hours worth of work in a full work day. So for $73, we get the uh, work equivalent of around five years of human work. So if you multiply out how much oil and coal and gas that the global economy uses on an annual basis, it's 100 billion barrels. So that means effectively we have a labor force, quote unquote, of 500 billion human workers that we're virtually paying pennies for to extract them from the earth and apply them to a global economy that has around 5 billion real humans. So the benefits we get from that higher wages, higher profits, lower price stuff that we can order online and it's delivered to our house, um, uh, higher GDP, higher global human population. All of it is a product of this one time carbon pulse endowment that humans are drawing down, treating it as if it were regenerative interest when it's actually the bank account. 
So all that together explains that we're energy blind and that this story is not taught in high schools, certainly in business schools or universities. You have to have an advanced ecology or system synthesis class to get at that. Why? Because our business schools and our economic programs treat that resources are not an issue and that if the price of something ever gets high enough, we will invent um, alternatives and substitutes to that. But the real story is this. Every single year, other than 2020, COVID, 2009, the great financial crisis, a couple years of energy, uh, uh, Middle East issues in the 1970s, the two world wars and the Great Depression in the 1930s. Every year in the last 150 years, humans have had more energy than the year before. And so all of our plans for the future are based on uh, uh, technology and keeping everything else constant and how will we invent our access to this or that. But it's all predicated on this implicit, uh, because we've never had any different other than these, these uh, periodic recessions, less energy every year. And, and so that's also part of the story, which we can get to, is um, will we continue to have more of this fossil energy every year that supports our economies? And by the way, if we did, then there's another aspect to the story, which is not energy blindness, but it's ecology blindness or systems blindness is where we don't pay for the cost of the pollution of this magic pixie dust that we're extracting, burning, and, and spreading around the global economic system. That was a bit much, maybe. I thought that was very well spoken. Yeah, there's a lot to digest. So I'm curious, what's been the, what are some of the stories that you've lived in your life on the way to the understanding and sort of kind of crystallized dedication you have now to share this material and to engage with the conversations you are and with the podcast and the efforts you're making to raise awareness and to make sense of this predicament. How have you what found yourself here? How did I find myself here? Well, um, in college, I wanted to learn and make a lot of money so I could get a better apartment and uh, impress uh, the young women in Chicago uh, and get a faster car, which is probably a normal thing uh, in your 20s uh, in a city in, in North America. And so I went that route and I got a master's in finance and I ended up working on Wall Street and managing money for billionaires. Um, and I learned a lot of things there. One thing was these billionaires, first of all, were no happier than the clerks making 20 grand a year processing the trades who were playing practical jokes on each other and, you know, clocked out at five o'clock and went and enjoy their family life. Number two is there wasn't a satiation that happened when they made more money. There was actually a compulsion 
that making more money wanted to make more money and it was linked to cultural cues of status and everything else. But I remember one of my clients had $200 million and he was just uh, so shrewd and frugal and all sorts of things. And then one of his big holdings doubled and he was suddenly worth around $350 million. And the natural response there is to retire <laughs> and, and do philanthropy or something. But he even got more motivated to make money and in investments. And so at a young age in my mid 20s, I saw this dynamic of human behavior, that more money is kind of a cultural, uh, in many ways, a, a thorn in our paw um, that is is driving us on this positive feedback uh, treadmill. Uh, and then the other thing I learned is not that client, but a different client started trading oil futures. And I had to advise him on that. So I took a deep dive and learned about oil. And I was like, Oh, my God, a it's incredibly powerful for what it does. B, it is very polluting in the externalities that are not included in the market price that every one of us pay. And three, most importantly, Oh my God, it's, it's a finite resource and it's depleting rapidly. And actually oil will hit its all time maximum and then start a, a permanent inexorable decline in my lifetime. And it was that realization, um, that six months after that, I gave my clients their money back. Um, I had a backpack full of books. I went to British Columbia with my golden retriever for six months, hiking, reading, thinking, and I came back um, and I applied to a PhD program in ecological economics. And since then, um, I've been building a network of systems ecologists, scientists, friends and colleagues to learn and, and talk about not a siloed uh, interpretation of this or that area of our uh, predicament, but how the whole thing fits together. And I've been working on education and advising governments and trying to pass the pro-social baton to other humans who are able to take this on board um, in a psychic wisdom, emotional maturity, nonpartisan uh, way, because it's not for everyone. This is kind of a daunting story. If you think about it, if you I mean, you, you've dove into this. So you know what I'm saying. And there's a lot of people that have trauma in our in our world. And telling this story, you know, eyes wide open, fire hydrant wide open with all these facts is instantly threatening if you haven't uh, thought about it and reflected on it. So it's not for everyone. But what I've done with the podcast, The Great Simplification, is I'm sending out a bat signal to those humans who deeply want to learn and play a role in our future. And every one of my guests, probably like yours, has a piece of it. No one person has the whole story and the whole answer. And we need to have diverse perspectives, both factual and perspectival. Um, and I, I'm hopeful that that somehow will create an emergent global, national, local conversation on these issues. And I, I think that's one of the only, uh, paths forward. And it's not only the facts, but it's also, 
how to engage and how to have a discussion on this. You might call it voicecraft, or you do call it voicecraft, but the, the interaction between two or a group of humans using words and cues and reciprocity and civic discourse and respect, even when you're dealing with challenging issues is, is one of the core things that we need to get better at. Um, yeah. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. Thank you for sharing the story. So there's many things which come to mind. One is just to reflect. You didn't use the word, but, but dissonance in the sense of cognitive dissonance, how difficult it can be moment to moment in our lives to keep in a relational touch with the implications of some of these deeper patterns and there's a certain inexorability to what you're describing given you you'd speak about you know our endowment as this sort of one-time carbon pulse i remember as a kid uh, it's it's funny i i did learn as a child all i have in my head about it really is just that it took a very 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 long time for oil to come into its present form and that uh, we were able to use that um, obviously only after such a long period of time and so on the time scale of a human life and our culture it's not renewable and that understanding has always been with me it's not hard to understand and yet how much that is factored into the everyday decision making of my life it's it's very difficult because of course in order to live in order to engage with this society and with this culture in order to create the conditions where conversation itself is possible and to meet others in address with the kind of respect for the conditions that they meet in the life world and the challenges and the struggles we all face is in some sense to recognize the the um sort of to to, to grant a kind of dignity uh, in a way because of our incapacity or at least that our incapacity to truly factor the deep patterns of the cultural organism from the perspective of any one actor is extremely difficult and there's so much motivation and incentive not to do so and so i certainly hear you in the in the desire and i, I feel the desire very much to be part of a conversation part of a network um, where it felt as though the deep patterns of what matter, the deep patterns that can help us make sense of the life world that we're a part of and which we're influenced and which we influence are at the same time welcome in the context of the kind of uh, quality of interaction and decent treatment of human beings as we are. <laughs> and so that the orientation towards that, I, I hear you and I meet you in that. And... Um, you know, I note, I'd, go ahead. Well, I have like six responses to what you just said. So you best Please. finish before I go on another 12-minute well, rant. 
I, you know, um, I'll, I'll take that then and, and run with it. But I would very much like to hear any time you, you feel drawn to speak something, go ahead. If we were in person, it would be easier for me to notice and, and slow down a little bit. But uh, where no, I was... It, it would be no different because uh, in person, I would probably interrupt you more than I do uh, on the phone. So, true. Um... Well, okay. <laughs> let me, let me, I'll continue then and just say... One of the ways that the conversation about this type of stuff is difficult is that um, in the, 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 the sphere of conversation online, in the memetic sphere, all these different narratives, different oftentimes ideological groups, or at least perspectives and arguments that speak for partial truths are maybe reflective of some values and maybe are missing and maybe blind to other values it becomes a very polarized subject to speak about for a number of reasons. And I'm just curious how you as an individual meet that. How do you feel about really having an expertise and a deep care about really, you know, something that touches on and very close to, if not fundamental to one of the most polarizing, difficult to make sense of things in our time? That's a big question. Um, let me tell you the things that came to mind um, while you were speaking real briefly, and then I'll, I'll uh, my little Nate that's running around the back of my head will think about the answer to your question in the meantime. Um, first of all, you said one thing that uh, I used to say, and um, now I cringed a little bit, and so just wanna correct you a little bit. You said our endowment of, of fossil fuels. It's, it's a endowment and we have chosen to label it fossil fuels uh, as if it were sitting there waiting for a species, particular ours to use. Um, but it's fossil carbon and hydrocarbons is the correct term. And it wasn't ours. We just happened to access it in the same way a squirrel would find a nut or a wolf would find a deer. Uh, but the semantics are important because one of the things we didn't talk about yet, and maybe we'll get to, is, you know, we are making decisions and our economic system has a momentum um, that is uh, affecting lots of other species and ecosystems and unborn generations of same. So um, I do uh, push back on anthropocentric uh, narrow boundary definitions of the problem and the care. Um, so that's, that's one thing. Um, you also asked about how do we live, uh, during this time without, you know, with, with taking all this on board and then, but we're living in it, we're using lights and camera and internet bandwidth to have this conversation. That I actually think is essential because if each of us that were aware of what's going on and the stakes would just consume less and sit in a shack on the back of our property and don't order anything and just eat rice and granola or, or whatever. Um, we would just be a, a little bit smaller of one eight billionth part of the problem. And I think those of us, you know, you have a podcast, you have a network, that have uh, the ability to be effective at larger scales 
have a responsibility to do that. And that requires occasionally flying planes and driving cars and whatever. Um, so that that's my feeling on that. Um, now your question is, how do I deal with being an expert in this space, but also living as an individual during this time? In the context of how polarized ah, right. much of the discussion is. So um, humans like certainty. So we don't have equal numbers of people that are loud and popular on the far right, the center and the far left. Opinions, especially in our social media age that are polarized end up gaining a lot of attention because it helps people's identity that I'm aligned with this. And this uh, is where I've attached my identity, whether it's climate change or social justice or, you know, whatever it is, or a rugby team. Um, and so nuance, complexity, uncertainty, uh, especially with threatening things, that don't make you feel good. And there's some time in the future. That's almost the perfect storm for the human brain to ignore or deny. So my story um, is that humans individually have outsourced our decision making to the financial markets. And we're optimizing the whole culture for growth. And the growth is denominated by dollars or Australian dollars or yen or euros. And the profits are tethered 99% to energy, energy and GDP are have a 99% correlation globally. And that energy is 81% tethered to fossil energy, which a is finite and B has a lot of pollution. So this economic system, the global economic growth based system has outcompeted other more sustainable, more wise, slower systems that did consider the well being of its the constituent parts, us the people, um, instead of just this blind goal towards growth. So in the same way, we kind of have to use the devil's tools to do Gaia's bidding with social media, with flying, with energy producing podcasts. Because if we just consume less, the super organism is just going to roll over us. So we kind of have to engage with the system uh, in order to change it is is my opinion. But getting to your question, all of the parts of the story that I'm telling um, slaughter some someone's sacred cow. I care deeply about climate change and the environment, but I don't think renewables are going to plug and play and they are not the answer to, our, to climate change. The answer to climate change is going to be uh, a lot less consumption per capita in the world and probably disproportionately in the global north. That stating that ain't going to win me friends either. I am um, a big believer in evolutionary psychology and that we are a product of our great, great, great grandcestors and what uh, were the um, behaviors and predilections that were conserved on the Pleistocene. 
those matter to us today. We go through uh, daily life in Melbourne or Sydney or Chicago trying to mimic the emotional states of our successful ancestors in a wildly novel uh, circumstance. And talking about that doesn't jive too well with the right because they don't necessarily believe in evolution or on the left that think that nurture uh, is responsible for um, most things that nature is, is not relevant. So if you pick apart my story, um, I actually think the value of my story, and it's not my story, um, I've just integrated a lot of scientists that came before me. Um, I think the value is we have arrived, Tim, at a species level story. We now know or have the ability to know where we came from, how we got here, what we're doing, what we actually need, what are some viable pathways forward. Um, but that systems level story only appeals to a certain type of person that is thinks in systems and is curious and emotionally mature. And so, yeah, my, I mean, you ask an astute question. Uh, this story, the great simplification could be wildly more popular if it would reduce the truthiness <laughs> a little bit. And I've, I've found that there's a trade off between being accurate and being helpful. And the more accurate you are, you're not necessarily being helpful. Um, and so, so far with this work, I've tried my best to be as accurate as possible and to lay out the system synthesis of anthropology, neuroscience, energy systems, monetary systems, human behavior, biodiversity, endocrine disrupting chemicals, climate change, ocean risks into a cohesive picture of what humans face. And um, I, I don't expect it will ever be either accepted or popular, but it is sending a bat signal to those humans that, that want to really understand how things fit together and play a role. Hmm. Yeah. Well, first of all, I appreciate the correction in language. That's quite right. Um, It's, it's a difficult thing to language this. And so, you know, I mean, the fact you are so well is, um, it's testament to trying over and over again, I suppose. <laughs> and so I'm sure you're learning a lot about what it is that people are able to resonate with and then where particular points of tension and pain are you mentioned sacred cows that that's the other challenge not to you know um have you function as my podcast therapist in in this session but the parts of the story and the relevance of the story changes massively depending on the audience. Next week, I have a presentation to two universities, to uh, FEMA, which is an emergency management division of the US government, to a group of 15 and 16 year old 11th grade students, uh, 
and to a community regenerative agricultural uh, local group, five five presentations. And what you know what what this what is the takeaway to each of those groups is is very very different. So that that's also a challenge um, too. And you know I think you picked up on this, and this is why we're friends and and get along. I I struggle with the difficulty of this work. And, um, you know, I live on the planet too, right now. Uh, but at the end of the day, I can just be myself and be myself is easy. So uh, I have all these facts and synthesis. But at the end of the day, we just have to be authentic and honest and open. And I think our culture is missing that uh, our culture is kind of becoming uh, immune and uh, skeptical of slick sales pitches and status seeking flexing. And, you know, being honest and vulnerable and flawed, which is me um, is um, maybe that is an important uh, um, discourse changer. Um, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it brings to mind, for instance, well, so much of the online discourse that might occur around climate, around energy, big picture synthesis, takes place in a form of debate, takes place in an inherently antagonistic type of way, which does have its value. And yet, Part of what is so at stake here is is really intimately connected to the core of our identity and how we relate to the world and each other and ourselves. How how we're how we are so deeply embedded in this process, and so feeling into that and being able at once to integrate. A kind of conversation that can presence difference and disagreement while at the same time holding to a commonality of care in some sense for the complex process of understanding the complexity of it all is often the part that's missing and that there's a messiness to it and it doesn't well, I, I do see signs, you know, I, I do see, in fact, many people caring about this. And it, there is, from what I can discern, a, a growing attentional interest in it. It still feels relatively early. And this, you know, is an interesting segue for me to ask a question, because one thing I am curious to hear your sort of full response to because it is partly about, from my perspective, I'm curious to address a particular moment in a mimetic discussion that's playing out on a number of different channels. I mentioned to you yesterday when we spoke, uh, and you, you rightly guessed that I was referring in part to Alex Epstein's work with respect to... Um, the case he makes for fossil fuels. Um, and he's become 
sort of quite well known in libertarian and conservative media outlets, which have a large influence. And I'll also speak on, on behalf of um, the, the quality of care I hear in um, many of those places, not necessarily um, incorporating some of what we've discussed in this conversation so far, but I recognize there is a quality of care um, for some sets of values. And so I want to sort of speak with that in mind that I think there is some amount of, um, you know, well-intentioned effort to um, make sense of the world. But it also seems to me to have some deficiency. And so I know you, you're familiar with some of Alex Epstein's work and how it's being received and there's places in which you, in fact, are in agreement. And then there's also a very core place in which there's, there's, a, there's a difference. And it would seem to relate to this point about um, that there are, in fact, not abundant fossil fuels. And on top of that, we do not own them as an endowment in that regard to incorporate that deeper sense of uh, respect for the, the total life process that hum human beings are involved in and matter as life as well, but that, um, you know, there, there, is a, there is a way to appreciate a wholer systems relation there. And so I am curious about how you relate to, to that sort of narrative and, and how you would address it. I don't know Alex Epstein uh, at all. Um, forget about him for the moment. Um, if you just close your eyes and imagine the world today with the Russia-NATO uh, war and people are worried about climate change, they're worried about the economies and someone who's attractive and charismatic comes out and says, um, fossil fuels are really important. They give us huge benefits. There's plenty left. We need to go after more of them. And climate change is kind of a hoax and a, um, a red herring. And it's, it's actually a good thing. And if that has marketing and promotion, behind it, lots of people will like that story because it makes them feel better about their own lives. It obviates any need for personal sacrifice or change. And it's just kind of a soothing populist story um, in contrast to something that is more threatening, more scary, will require some interventions by governments, by our fellow countrymen and women, and by ourselves in the near future. You can just tell right there which sort of stories will populate and which will be considered fringe. <clears throat> and that's not a new thing, but I think the more that events in the world get dicier and more intense, the more that we will be looking metaphorically for, for bread, and, bread and circus types of stories, not all of us, probably not me and you, 
but large numbers of humans uh, will. Now, to Alex Epstein, um, he had a, a recent uh, essay that I read, um, 20 Myths About Energy. Uh, I read them and the first 10, I was like, oh my God, this like came directly from my material. I mean, he writes about some of the things I said earlier on this podcast, um, using different facts and, and lenses, but the magnitude of economic benefits that have accrued to humans because of coal, oil, and natural gas are gargantuan and not widely understood. He's totally right about that. He's also totally right about the fact that renewable energy, solar, wind, geothermal, uh, nuclear to some extent, um, are not able to get rid of fossil fuels and power our society on these renewables in like a plug and play, and that there are challenges and costs, and that if we do it blindly and just say, grow as much renewable energy as possible, try to get rid of this polluting energy, we're going to have systemic breakdowns and um, big problems in our energy system. I think he's got a few nuanced things there wrong, but by and large, he's right about those two points. But then is where I disagree strongly uh, with his, his views. Number one is he says peak oil has never happened and won't happen, uh, which, you know, it, it's a certainty that at some point peak oil will happen because just like if you're picking apples on the tree and you pick all of them you can reach, there's a bunch left, you can get a ladder. Eventually there won't be any apples left. The same with this endowment of, of uh, fossil carbon. And I, I can tell you some examples about that in a second, but we have done everything possible to squeeze as much out as we could using new technology, using uh, debt, uh, both as an economy and as the oil uh, investing sector. And all this has done is really just kind of widened the size of the straw, which we're slurping out the oil and made it much closer to that slurping sound you get at the end of a, a, of a milkshake. So the United States has more oil wells drilled than the rest of the world combined. And we have different oil provinces. We have Alaska, we have the Gulf of Mexico, we have the lower 48 conventional. And the United States peaked in 1970 in oil production. We had a 40 year decline. And then it started to go up again, partially because of us, uh, Alaska, partially because of the Gulf of Mexico, but mostly because we started to drill the, the shale oil, the light tight oil in the Baca and the Permian, uh, et cetera. This stuff is the source rock. Uh, this is where all the other oil migrated from and there's nothing left after the source rock. And when you drill it, you get 90% of the full production of that new well in the first 18 months or 80 to 90%. So right now in the United States, which is one of the top three oil producing countries in the world, technical language thing, oil extracting countries in the world, um, because we're not producing the oil, right? It's already been produced. We're pulling it out of the ground. Um, if we were to stop drilling today, for whatever reason, for an environmental worry reason, for an activist reason, for a we can't afford it reason, any reason at all, the 
total production in the United States would decline 40% in the first year and another 25% the year after that and another 20% after that. So right now in the United States, the largest consumer of oil in history, we have to continue to drill new wells in less pristine, uh, I mean, less quality reservoirs just to, to keep constant. So U.S. oil production will peak and decline this decade, and with it will be global oil production. Now, here's another thing, is on the upslope, we just count all the oil in the world, and if a country doesn't need it all, they'll export it somewhere else, and it's a global economic system, and the rising tide is lifting all boats, and there's international cooperation and letters of credit and all this. But once growth ends or is problematic or there's a global uh, uh, move towards a multipolar world and the U.S. dollar might not be the reserve currency or certainly we won't price baskets of commodities or oil in U.S. dollars like we always have. When these things start to happen, you have to look under the, the hood a little bit. As I said before, the United States, Russia, and Saudi Arabia are the three largest oil producers in the world, but the U.S. uses more oil than we produce, so we have to import oil. Saudi Arabia and Russia use far less oil for their own industries and populations than they produce, so they export a lot. So 46% of all oil that's available for purchase in the world and the markets is produced in Saudi Arabia and Russia. So there becomes this geopolitical limit to oil availability. So um, the scarcity and the fact that we may soon be heading into lower fossil fuels uh, per year as opposed to more, even if we want more, even if everyone agrees with people like Alex Epstein that we want more, I don't think we're necessarily going to be able to get more because of depletion. Depletion is all the existing wells in the world right now are depleting at six to six and a half percent a year, which means if nothing changes, they drop at six percent a year. And we're offsetting that by drilling new wells and finding new things. So I disagree with him that we will be able to grow our fossil fuel future much more. But the biggest area that I disagree with him, he's like two or three degrees of climate change, that would be good for the world. Climate change is not an issue. And this is just so patently wrong on, on, on many, many fronts. I think he's right in that parts of the environmental movement have had this shrill, the world is going to collapse in 10 years if we don't do something about climate. And there's going to be runaway, we're turning into uh, Venus um, and it's unavoidable and humans are going to be extinct in 20 years. There are a lot of stories out there that are pretty incredulous. Um, but it's apparent and people in Australia are quite aware that climate change is probably not a hoax, uh, given some of the events that you've experienced uh, in the recent few years. But the issue with climate change and many environmental issues is the, the, the negative impacts are going to be backloaded. And by the time we actually see, oh my God, this is so serious, it will be far too late to do anything about. But right now the ocean is acting as a buffer for human economies. 90% of the excess heat 
that has been produced from the greenhouse effect and from the burning of fossil fuels has gone into the oceans. And eventually they will not be able to act as this, uh, this buffer uh, and then temperatures really start to rise. Now, personally, I think the end of growth and the resulting economic and geopolitical response to that is going to be a much bigger issue in the next 10 years than climate change. But climate change in the next century um, and the other, uh, you know, CO2 is only one of the pollutants that comes from uh, hydrocarbons. There's also the uh, um, PFAS or the forever chemicals, like a, a, a milk jug. I assume you have those in Australia. That, that milk jug will last for 700 years before it degrades. And when it degrades, it'll degrade into smaller uh, forever chemicals that will be around forever. So we already, uh, um, science has uh, shown a new paper out last month that sperm count of human males and animals is dropping 1% a year. And this is globally. Um, and this is thought to be from the outgassing of the petrochemicals that come from our plastics that just rub off a little bit and they're so small that they become airborne and they precipitate in the water. Um, you know, there are people like Alex Epstein who are narrowly focused and they're they're correct in some of the things that they're saying, but on the arc of the long, of the larger uh, uh, observation of our systemic situation, they're not even wrong. They're not even in the conversation. Uh, you know, another thing that gets pushback on, and it's just hard for me to fathom this, um, is people dispute the fact that we're having massive animal population declines. And again, partially this is due to some shrill cries by environmentalists who are exaggerating the claims and saying that we've lost 70% of species on earth in the last 50 years or claims like that, that have a little bit of the correct facts, but mostly wrong. There was a study that came out that said the average animal, bird, fish, reptile, population on earth declined by 70% since 1970. That was what the study said. Now there's approximately 10 million species on the planet. We don't really know how many. Um, but what scientists did is we don't have the money and the time and the scientific research help to go and catalog and count all the species. So they did censuses on 31,000 species, you know, rhinoceroses and certain sorts of insects. And on average, the average drop during that time was 70%. So some dropped 95% and some dropped 10%. So this is like a freaking stunning reality that since I've lived on the planet, we've lost 70%, not of the species, but of the numbers of individual organisms in those species. That is a big freaking deal. And this was happening before we found fossil fuels, really. This started, uh, you know, a long time ago. But, but, but let me throw one, one more thing out, uh, Tim, and then I'll, I'll, I'll pause and, and let you uh, respond. Our system requires growth because we create money 
both at commercial banks and at governments, but mostly at commercial banks, when we create the money, we don't create the interest that the borrower of the money will eventually have to pay. So this writ large globally acts as this exponential growth imperative that the whole system has to grow. The whole system is 99% tethered to energy. So if we uh, grow our economy, if we grow our GDP by 100%, we're going to grow our energy needs by 99%. So all the world governments and institutions in the world more or less expect that we will grow at 3% a year as a global economy into the future. If that happens, we will double the amount of energy that we need in the next 20 in the next 30 years. And we will double the amount of materials that we need like copper and trees and you know uranium or or any any sort of metals um because materials and GDP are 100% correlated. If we double the size of our economy, we double the size of the materials. So the default scenario is that in the next 30 years, we will use more energy and materials than have been used in the last 10,000. Because every doubling is the same quantity as all prior doublings. And then there will be another doubling from 2050 to 2080. And so when you look at our fossil future and you know, the, the story that these um, narrow, uh, charismatic, smart spokespeople are out there talking about, it just doesn't look at the magnitude of how the system fits together. And what I just said is kind of scary and ominous and threatening. How are we going to, first of all, what if we are able to quadruple our energy and materials in the next uh, 60 years? what's left of the natural world and our ecosystems that are our life support systems in that scenario. On the, on the flip side, what if we're not able to have the next doubling? Then uh, how, do, how do we distribute resources? Um, and what is the political system that manages that? These are very serious questions. Um, and, and, you know, that's, that's why we're doing this podcast. These are the sorts of things that we have to start to navigate. I hope somewhere in there I answered your question. Yeah, right. Well, thank you. Thank you. So I, I'm glad you brought back in the notion of growth because this is something that's a little more connected to understanding I feel I can contribute more towards can participate in because we're sort of talking not so far away from the realm of what do we value you know, what matters to a human life uh, what matters to life uh, what matters in the context of uh, life death process uh, how can we relate to the mystery of what we are in such a way that can transform our perception of what matters to us 
And in that process, can we undergo a kind of remembering of what does in fact matter to us, which turns out in a way already to be present? There's this, there's this sense of when we... T- it, economy as a kind of growth of needing to consume more, to, to have more, whether to make more weapons or create more goods, to create more surplus over here. I mean, there's a sense, obviously, we, we need to have enough food to live and we need to have shelter and medicine and, and to create the conditions um, for a number of uh, beautiful possibilities in life, you know. And so we have this sort of necessity of... Um, growing ourselves, developing ourselves so that we can um, meet a certain category of need. And then there's another aspect to being in the world. And uh, John Vivekhi speaks about this often. He, he references Eric Fromm and talking about the having mode and the being mode and how we can be modally confused, you know, trying to meet needs of being, uh, whether maturity or love or friendship by just looking to have more things and get more things consume them and so forth and you touched on this a little bit in the story of what you witnessed in your younger days and so part of the story of this moment certainly a story i feel connected to many people do is is trying to understand why it is um, and how to address uh, that there is such a tremendous category of value of things that things even not exactly things necessarily but but realities in life that matter uh, which don't fit neatly into the category of a good or a service exactly and yet characterize so much of the goodness and the and the quality and the beauty that we aspire to in life, yeah? family and community and art and creation yeah? and reverence and, and worship and, and all these types of dynamics and spiritual process and just a straight up awe and wonder and, and, uh, and also uh, the, you know, the, the, the hilarity of it. You know, you can go to a stand-up comic and it's just a dude or a woman on a stage. And so there's not much that's required for that, you know, and, and laughter is such an amazing thing. And so this relationship between this, um, how much a certain kind of growth becomes so dominant in conversation about what's valued when, when all along um, we are blind to the value that goes into perhaps even the very energetic exchange which makes that conversation possible, maybe the very commons of the language that we participate in to understand each other, the immense value that has been uh, bestowed to us, not for us, but we can be, you know, if we are able to be worthy of participating in uh, that value and the onward sharing of it, right? Whether that is materials resources or whether it is the wisdom of the lineage of culture and the intelligent possibility of our bodies right in relationship to entropy and all these things so how how do you relate to the notion of of growth in this sense um and and just relating to this particular dynamic 
this may be a long answer. Um, first of all, I don't think we as human individuals necessarily seek growth. Of course, the world over, we'd like to go to a better restaurant or afford a better school for our children, you know, those sorts of things. But I think predominantly there's two things that are pulling us. One is the blind profit seeking, uh, unseeing metabolism of the global economic uh, engine that doesn't care about us. It cares about growing monetary uh, representations of reality. And it will continue to do that until it runs out of uh, runway. That, that's one thing that's going on that it's no one's fault. Uh, it was built over time and now is out of control. And even billionaires and, and politicians can't control that global market without having, a, um, you know, upsetting the apple cart. The other is our cultural stories and what we compete for. In ancestral times, 10,000 years ago, everyone had the same amount of wealth. There was total wealth equality because we didn't have any wealth. We carried stuff around. Uh, I mean, we didn't carry stuff around because we had to, we were nomadic. There was status though. There was people that were better storytellers or hunters or gatherers, or they were kinder or whatever we measured uh, status by, there was a status hierarchy. So our culture now um, chooses pecuniary measures of success, like a billionaire or a private jet or a mansion, or these things have become part of the vernacular to, men to represent success of that individual. When, as you were saying before, those people that have lived their lives and learned this or who become wise and, um, and insightful as young humans know that after basic needs are, are met, the best things in life are free. And those are playing with dogs and going for a walk and in, in nature and playing a silly card game with six of your friends, uh, making simple meals together, and all of those things, it's just this cultural carrot is always out there in the form of advertising saying, you suck, but if you buy this product, you'll be cool. And all right, so here I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you a little story, Tim, um, because this is fresh in my mind, and I'm going to bring it back to, to your question. So last week, I was with a, a coach who is an Indian guru. I uh, spent three and a half days with him and I'm going to recount everything I'm telling you now is, is his ideas, but it's applying to my life. And I think to all of our lives, because what you were saying about your embodied reaction to things, we have to be the change we want to see in the world. And I didn't really understand that until recently his, his philosophy. And eventually I might have him on a podcast if, if he's willing is that as evolved beings, we have this vertical stack that starts with the microbiome, which is not us, but other cells in our body. Then there's the cell, then the organs, then the enteric system, which is the digestion, um, then the reptilian system, then the limbic system, and then our thinking, our cognitive thinking. And all of us go around our, our life and we think that the thinking is in control 
Um, but in reality, it's the opposite. The thinking is just the tiniest tip of the iceberg outside of the water. And it's this pyramid. And the lower down you go, the more powerful these things are. Let's just start with the enteric system. This is in charge of homeostasis, keeping what you've become to think is normal going. Even if your normal is terribly unhealthy, like your eating and drinking and exercise habits, your body will try to maintain what you've been doing for the last three months. And it, 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 so it pulls you in that direction. Above that is the reptilian system, which is the fight or flight system. And that the default is the sympathetic nervous system, which is stress, fight or flight. And sometimes we can get to the parasympathetic nervous system, which is the calm and in the zone and relax. And parasympathetic and sympathetic are kind of complicated words. I prefer dis-ease or ease. And the parasympathetic is you're in a zone of ease. Moving up to the limbic system, and this is what you were talking about, um, you mentioned having and doing. I would, I would say that it's, it's being and doing uh, is, is another way to look at it. Most people today are in a state of dissatisfaction. And so they go through their lives and they want to have satisfaction. And most of the things we do, uh, gambling and porn and eating and stock market options and all these things are dopamine generating activities that don't really bring us satisfaction. It's just a, an immediate prophylactic for satisfaction. And above all that is our cognitive thinking. Unless these other limbic reptilian homeostasis things are in aligned, in homeostasis, in parasympathetic, in um, satisfied, but not with dopamine, we can't process all this human predicament stuff that you and I are talking about. So, um, you know, my grand awareness here is more facts aren't going to necessarily help people. We need to be living this way with each other, with, by ourselves. I need to vertically integrate my own behaviors in order to be a, a better midwife to help others uh, on this path to make a better future for all of us. Because this little example that I just said about the misalignment of our lower level systems exactly maps on to the metabolic superorganism, which is our global culture. And so we have dopamine, which is a motivating chemical and potentially an addictive one. And that's on an axis with endorphins, which we get from exercise. And then, so that would be the doing axis. And then the other axis is the serotonin and oxytocin. And this is a four-legged stool that humans should get a, a good dollop of all four of these things. But if you can't get the endorphins or the oxytocin we get from playing cards or hanging out with our friends or having a conversation like this, if we can't get the slow-release serotonin uh, that's really healthy for our system, the default is the one-legged stool, dopamine. And our entire culture is like, uh, like someone that lifts weights every day, but they only do it with their right arm and their bicep is massive and the rest of their body is atrophied, we're kind of doing that to our brain. And so I think we have to understand energy and debt and anthropology and neuroscience and climate change and all this, but we have to start 
by looking inward and really having a gut check and getting in the best emotional, physical, spiritual, physiological shape that we can to be, uh, of, you know, a vector for living and being the example that we want to show without trying to generate status or ego or whatever, we're doing it because it's the right thing to do. And we're coming from a, a stable, centered, healthy place. Well, I've never said any of that uh, to anyone, let alone on a recorded podcast. So I hope that made sense. <laughs> yeah, it certainly makes sense. It certainly makes sense. And yeah, it's a that you know call and um that orientation in terms of how a person can relate to the macro by attending to a progressively more holistic understanding of who they are and what they are um, so as to meet the world as more of what they could be uh, is for sure so important and um, we've spoken a lot on on this channel and podcast and in the network about the importance of um, well praxis and um, participation really engaging in dialogue and conversation and relating with others with respect to these ideas and um and so i certainly see and, and hear what you've um, advocated for as being important and it's also as well a really big ask and i find myself often uh hopefully in the in a in a good moment in a good flow oscillating with this dynamic of returning to breath, returning to the here and now of who I am and what I can be and how I am able to engage. So this, this coach um, gave me a list of things to do, and I'll just share a couple of them. Um, and I, I'm, I'm sure that my own situation is quite different than anyone listening to this program. Um, he said that I've been partially because of my personality and partially because of the story that I've been working on for 20 years have pretty much been in a constant state of fight or flight. And that's so my brain and body thinks that I'm going to die or there's something urgent happening. And so I approach things in my day with that uh, physiology. And he said for the next month, Every time you get a stressful email or a social media response or something that you learn about the world or something that gives you anxiety, pause, breathe in through your nose, breathe deeper in through your nose and do a long exhale through your mouth. And if you do that even a hundred times a day, first of all, it actually physiologically will calm you down. Uh, in the same way that dogs breathe that same way. But more importantly is over time, you will train your body that you're not in a fight or flight situation that you had mm -hmm. created that sense 
in your uh, immediate reality and it's not true. And that over time, you will naturally not, um, you know, be in, in that mode. Um, suggestions like that. Totally. Well, let me add, let me add something here. Because yeah, you probably know way about more about these sorts of praxis than I do. Well, I I know some things. I'm far from an expert. I know of the importance of it, and I have my own. I'm in my own process of of learning more, and obviously going through the process of of that. Um, but I can say so. There was a course, and there will be a course uh, this year. We were running in Voicecraft. Postponed it to this year, called Transformative Philosophy, and a module in that was going to be on the nervous system. Mm. Um, but in particular, I'd love to connect you with a man named Johnny Miller. He actually runs a really well done course called Nervous System Mastery. And uh, he has a podcast, it's called Curious Humans. Um, and uh, we actually recorded a podcast, it's maybe uh, seven or eight episodes ago, it's called Becoming Embodied, if anybody listening is interested. Um, but I know that Johnny is actually interested in in speaking up more on podcasts now. And he really is a... a you know, a, a rare and um, a beautiful man in many ways. And um, I think what he's created with the resources um, he's put together for his course, specifically with respect to helping people reconnect to this process of um, regulating their own nervous system is really worthwhile paying attention to. So I, I appreciate the introduction. I've actually someone else has recommended him to me. So if you could connect us, that would be great. I, I continue want to tell the story of our biophysical uh, human predicament and what paths there are for governments, nations, communities, and how we're going to have to change our, you know, as Marvin Harris would say, our, our social structure, um, superstructure and infrastructure. But at the end of the day, I increasingly want to talk about how do we first cope, then thrive, then engage with the problems of our time as individual humans? And I think to continue to throw facts at people whose nervous system is out of whack is, is, is really not that productive. So I uh, suddenly I want to merge these two, the intellectual with the embodied um, approach. And I am a complete novice on the latter. Um, so I, I thank you in advance for the introduction. Yeah. Okay. Well, I know we're moving towards the end of our time now, and I just want to thank you for that. And, um, and if I can ask sort of a final question, it's going to be an open one, but I'm just wondering, I mean, you've already shared some of the things you've recently learned. And so in that sense, you've shared what's sort of on the pulse for you in terms of, um, how your work continues to evolve. But I was going to ask sort of what have been, or maybe I'll ask it like this. Um, as you look sort of ahead to 2023 and beyond, what do you feel most called by? Is there a growing sense of this is where I'm feeling I want to, you know, share more energy, contribute more. It's calling you to participate. 
I do have that feeling, Tim. Um, and I will explain what it is. I've spent 20 years learning on different topics. And over time, the, the lines between the topics kind of disappeared. And so I think my contribution is um, telling the systems science story in an understandable way uh, to help other people um, understand it and make changes in their lives and their communities. And so I've got, uh, I, I, one of the things I want to do is start from scratch, do an eight to 10 hour video series, like my entire college course online in short videos telling how all this stuff fits together. I want to continue to push the envelope on hosting different humans from diverse backgrounds around the world on their contribution and suggestions as we approach the great simplification, um, which is an economic transition away from uh, uh, multi-generations of consistent economic growth towards something different. I don't think I want to have a podcast forever. And eventually, um, I want to help with post-growth philanthropy and those humans that are working on great projects on regenerative agriculture or different social structures or new governance uh, plans is to be involved and just act as a catalyst to help those things along. One thing that I've learned recently that was uh, kind of um, uh, liberating for me is I always felt like I'm telling the world such a complicated, threatening story that I have to have commensurate solutions to tell them. Because most people, especially politicians, they hear problems all the time. And unless there's a solution uh, stapled to it, you can't be bothered. I felt that pressure. And now I feel like telling the story and just some directions, we're going to have to use less energy and money per capita, probably in the not too distant future. The best things in life are free after basic needs are met. Self-worth is the new net worth. GDP is not a measure of our success. It's just a measure of how much stuff uh, we burn uh, annually, globally. And without being overly prescriptive, because once you start to say, this is the answer, this one thing, um, you've, you've oversimplified the thing. So I'm, I'm more and more comfortable just setting the table and, and providing the aerial view of what we face and then inviting lots more humans like yourself and like many people that listen to my podcast to think about this and spin it around and come up with something emergent in their own skills and their network that they thought of that I never could have thought of. And that kind of feels uh, alive to me the next 18 months um, uh, along those lines. And I do feel strongly that young human, that we underestimate teenage human beings. We underestimate everyone probably, but I think our culture really ignores the creative and uh, wondrous potential of 13 to 17 year olds. And I would like to do some version of this, that before they're already on the I got college loans, and I need to get a job uh, treadmill to to inculcate some of the thinking of this biophysical once in a species era that they're alive in um, into 
uh, a young person's uh, awareness and contribution towards towards this situation. Yeah, I hear that. That's beautiful. Well, I wish you the best with that. Thank you for sharing your energy in this conversation. I hope people took a lot from it. So bring this to a close and uh, stick around with me for a couple minutes though after I turn the recording button off, okay? Thanks, Tim. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening and I hope you enjoyed the journey. You can visit voicecraft.io to find out more about this project, the network, the mailing list, opportunities to participate, upcoming courses in the Voicecraft Academy, as well as access the show notes for this episode. That's voicecraft.io. And thank you as always to the patrons of the podcast at patreon.com voicecraft. That's where you can pledge a small amount each month to support this work.